what I knew what they were talking about. <laughs> you know, Michael, the um, uh, welcome to the Regeneration Podcast. I've got a question for you that I think you just came to the microphone looking like you're out of breath. But uh, there's this new thing you see on Twitter, at least I've seen a lot of it this week. Not necessarily new. It's this phenomenon where people say, like, I was today years old when I realized some people yeah. have, you know, I was today years old. So one of them, and I didn't want to open it because you get stuck in these things. You got to like back out 50 times. But it was, I was today years old when I realized Goofy wasn't a dog. Goofy's not a dog? No, but so I didn't want to open it because I knew I'd, you know how you, they, you open them? Yeah. <laughs> let me, let me quickly ask our guest. Any, any insight into that, Brandon? Then I want to double back to Michael. Is Goofy not a dog? And if not, what the hell is Goofy? You know, I, I tend to stay away from these difficult existential questions, so I, I've not encountered this one. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah, no, it's a wormhole. It's a wormhole. And maybe I'll have to open that one up. I just thought, Michael, you've got your finger on the pulse frequently. You are coming in exhausted, Michael. Tell me about it. I'm not exhausted. It's been working my ass off. But, okay. Well, I, I taught, I'm teaching that course on Rosicrucianism. How's it going? Great. I mean, I got a really, really smart people. From across the world, actually. From... Who do I know? I'm sure I know one or two of your students. They'd be listeners, maybe, or camarados from Jesus. Oh, Imagine. Daniel Polikoff. Is oh, okay, well, well, yeah. And is there anybody else that you know? This Daniel Polikoff, Brandon, is quite a speaker in his own right. He's, yeah. And what a poet. Yeah. He's, he actually yeah. recently sent me a poem. That he wrote I... this masterful biographer of, uh, biography of Rilke. Rilke. Okay. Mm. And, we're, and he, yeah, we were talking about Novalis too. Okay, I saw yeah. your blog post on that. Your uh, Substack. That was mind blowing to tell you the truth. Yeah, Michael <laughs> had a similar horoscope to Novalis, this great German romantic poet who died young. I mean, it's not. It's not even. I mean, it's it's spooky how much overlap there was. Hmm. And does having a, one day apart in birthdays that produce any chance of that type of alignment? You know, to an outsider who doesn't know much the about sun, the sun is going to be around there anyway. But yeah, everything. I mean, the thing is, it wasn't the sun? It was almost all the other planets. Interesting, close to each other. And he, hmm. uh, Rudolf Steiner, claimed that Novalis was the reincarnation of John the Baptist. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Talk about Rosicrucianism. Our guest. Let me tell you how I met him. Uh, Shortly after Hurricane Katrina, his name is Brandon Gaylord. Um, you know, I'm running the Catholic campus ministry at SUNY Geneseo. And um, we, the school had been organizing some relief trips down there. And I was organizing one, I think, just from the Catholic community. And then the vice president of student life called up and said, you know, why don't you vest, just go with the college? And I did. And it was some members from the Newman community. And then, uh, but also just a, a group. And the first night we arrive in Biloxi after flying through New Orleans, driving east, arriving at night, I'm outside this kind of a, boy, I forget where we stayed. Was it this place, Brandon, like a a shelter where the roll-offs of Little People Big World had stayed? Were you, was that your year? Yeah, it, it looked like a, it looked like a commune. Um, okay. Yeah, I just remember feeling like this was not very well thought out. <laughs> that's great but we did good work but the uh two things i remember one is that um when i met brandon he was outside the first night and you were mentioning michael rosicrucianism he was reading carol quigley's uh tragedy and hope and we started talking about that so that some people think is a masterwork of uh you know he's a georgetown guy very serious but anybody who wants to talk about um permanent washington or the deep state they're reading carol quigley and they say you know bill clinton was a student of him and so forth the other thing brandon which still makes me laugh when i think about it is school, right? 
Yeah, yeah. What is with the Jesuits, man? It's weird. Well, they, uh, uh, you know, Edmund Walsh was this great Jesuit leader. He had his hands into everything geopolitical. You know, so yeah. I'm just saying, you Google Edmund Walsh. Well, Georgetown is like, you know, it's like ground zero for that kind of political science stuff. Yeah. Which makes you think all the conspiracy theories are true about the Jesuits. Well, it's also the Jesuits have this great history of diplomacy, right? Because they were an international order. That goes certainly back to the... Kicked out of the Catholic Church. Yeah. 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 You know. <laughs> um, but that, that other thing, Brandon, I remember is we, we'd be working on a house repairing it. And we had... Biloxi is next to uh, an Air Force base. And people would be working on a house. And Brandon and I would do these made-up things about the airplanes flying overhead as if we knew the intimate details of fighters. And we'd just pull a name out of our ass. And I'd say, Brandon, yeah, Mike, are you hearing an R24 with maybe a little combustion problem in the number two engine? <laughs> and he would say, yeah, sure do, Mike. And every other student there believed. Do you remember that, Brandon? Yeah, what I remember was, <clears throat> excuse me, spending roughly a thousand dollars say that about 20 of us students who go down there and you saying, you know, so you take all the students together, it's about $20,000 for a total investment to go down here to have a bunch of students who don't know how to use a hammer or a paintbrush pretend to, to contribute. Uh, what if we just like told the students to keep half their money and give the other half to a contractor down here who knows what they're doing and think of the good we can do. And I remember being was, down there and thinking, yeah, that's, that's, that's a brilliant idea, but it's also too late for ideas. Like oh, that. you're saying you heard it from me? <laughs> yeah, I heard it yeah, from Yeah, yeah, because that's Ivan Illich like... through and through. You know, there's a famous essay, To Hell With Good Intentions. Now, again, if you could go right. to get around that, you know, some people go on service projects where you go to Haiti and you just allow yourself to be hosted by the family. So you realize your powerlessness, that you're going to learn more than the people. Oh, instead, of, you, instead of the Messiah complex version? Yeah, absolutely. I'm here to save you, yeah. our impoverished yeah. black people. So I, that well, was cool. Yeah, go ahead, Brad. Yeah. Well, and that, that's really where you you sort of introduced me to the idea of localism. And, you know, we're flying 2,000 miles or so to go help people. And there's poor people up in Rochester, poor people in Buffalo. I mean, poor people everywhere. And, you know, people who need assistance everywhere. And maybe we can do better work by just staying home and repairing the, the wall in our own backyard as opposed to seeking it out. <laughs> I, uh, was, I think we can. Yeah. And, you know, and part of me has a soft spot, you know, that the exotic service project still could have a role to change hearts and to make community and so forth. But, yeah, those are my inclinations. But the um, the worst would be this notion that um, you I remember even like the thing for the March for Life uh, in Washington, you could take yourself too seriously. But we used to joke about like the number of babies we we're saving with every step. Right. You know that it's also we like being here. But, you know, it, it's kind of a both and. But, yeah, if you there's people. And I think we would all agree with this. There's people who make it their life um, just doing service project after service project and like hanging with young people. And my wife used to be the volunteer coordinator for Habitat for Humanity International, you know, out of America's Georgia. And you just had these like these people who just were always doing that. Right. But um, is it like social yeah. justice tourism. Is that what yeah, it's like? yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you think about I, it? I, like, think, I have I, a soft spot for it. I don't do it too much. And I, I do like the Illichian approach, but there's a human part of me too that says I've seen lives changed by doing little things like that. You know, in community, it's just so, where you reflect It's just it. so yeah. self-serving though. It's just so self-serving. I mean, I, like I live in a, a city now in Arizona where, you know, there's, there's homelessness and there's poverty and kids are still doing service learning trips to places like Biloxi and 
you know, all these places. And it's like, just go out back. There's people <laughs> right there. Go yeah, buy right in the corner where you live. Yeah. And give it to all this yeah. person. Yeah. yeah. And I just think, I think it's hard to get away from the idea that you're doing it simply for your own self-gratification. And, yeah. you know, if you need to fly 2,000 miles to understand that there's poverty in the world, <laughs> I think that says more about you than the other people. Yeah. But I'm saying sometimes we do, like G.K. Chesterton's whole corpus is based upon almost exactly that. You know, he has to go around the world to discover his wife again, who looks like a stranger. And then, you know, he falls in love or, you know, that we could go on these things for that from a distance. Like, I love that song from Into the Woods or Giants in the Sky. You know, when you get in an airplane, you climb the bean tree and you see her home and it looks so exotic again. That's the hope. That's what I'm saying. I have a soft spot for it. Are you right? Yes. You know, but I'm trying to say that some of the some of the impulses behind these things aren't just the spawn of Satan, you know. Well, I, I agree, but Michael, you're Genesee, okay. was a, Genesee was a college made up of students from New York City and Rochester. So the idea that they're not exposed to poverty before they get to our rural, you know, agrarian college. I know, I'm saying they need me. to see it sometimes from a distance to get it. Sometimes they need to see it from a distance to get it. Or, to, or, to, or romanticize a little bit. Michael, you're a poet. What do you think? Uh, I never understood that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... You don't have to go far to find people suffering yeah, in poverty. Agreed. And you certainly don't need to go hundreds of miles away. Yeah. Um, so I never got that. I mean, my kid, you, even like the March for Life, uh -huh. you know, I mean, I get it, but usually it's a bunch of kids going and very often it's, it's like I remember seeing an interview with John Mellencamp of all things and he was talking about protesting in Washington DC we got like 20. He said yeah you know we were protesting and we were there for for, for doing that but 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 besides that it was a big party. Yeah. You know what I mean? People are drinking a lot of beer and smoking a lot of marijuana. So but, I would again on that yeah. one and I've written about <laughs> this at Front Porch Again, I, I, I get it all. And the, the soft spot, because there's good people there, is I wrote an article and I invoked Wallace Stevens. You know, you're, you're walking around the mall of Washington. That, you know, truth depends on a walk around the lake. That to take some students to, uh, to see, you know, politics, messy bedfellows. You know, my thing is not showing pictures of dissembled babies as my lead. My, my thing is not even Cardinal Keeler showing a baby in utero on the screen in the in the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception. You know, I've got Illichian sympathies there too, but I, you know, I take students and I talk about strange bedfellows. Um, there's kind of a serenity of peace, but I do want to say, if our listeners understand, I lead, what we've done is we've reversed it. We've made, we've made the far primary and the local secondary. I'm, I've, you know, I can talk comfortably on this, doesn't mean I'm right, is that my whole corpus of writings at Front Porch is begin local, but sometimes that kind of experience to, to see things from a distance, to get messed up, provided it doesn't become an end to itself. I've seen some good fruits from it, you know, but it's become its own industry. And so I have to say, along mm -hmm. with you, Michael, yeah. I don't necessarily get it. Yeah, it's an industry now. It is an industry. Let me introduce our guest too, which I haven't done. Brandon Gaylord, that's how I met him. You're going to describe yourself. I kind of brought him on for something I, we've done several times thus far. And um, it's just engaged somebody I've used some different students one time, my son, and a little bit of this idea of a younger generation, but also, you know, Brandon, last time we touched base, you'd kind of re-engage with scripture. You might tell a little bit about your journey. I also want to talk about education. You have a lot of thoughts on education. Mm -hmm. And um, instead of bringing somebody on with a, you know, theme kind of like ours, 
talking to people, um, seeing like how the Regeneration podcast plays in Peoria, you know, uh, what's working for you in life? when you look at the church, Protestant, Catholic or neither? What are you seeing? What's turning you off? These are some of the things we're going to talk about. So kind of describe who you are, Brandon, and welcome to the Regeneration sure. podcast. Great. Thank you. So Mike and I met uh, when I was uh, attending Geneseo. From there, I went to uh, grad school and uh, taught for a number of years, um, ran for state office in New York State. Uh, I don't know if you know that, Mike, but uh, came I did. in I a- followed uh, the campaign. Okay. Came in a close second, uh, yeah. but there's no prize for second place, which is fine. Um, but that's really where I sort of got re-energized with my faith because I found myself, you know, knocking door to door and getting questions in uh, Hudson Valley asking me my stance on abortion. And that's, you know, I'm always trying to be authentic. I was described as perhaps too honest for politics, which is a compliment that I'll take with me. Um, but it was along those lines that I really sort of re-engaged with my faith. Uh, I see a lot of myself in in Paul or Saul of Tarsus, uh, the idea of the sinner who's touched and saved. Uh, and so that's kind of how I'm I view myself. Um, recently, my family and I moved from New York to Arizona. He's got uh, a newborn, Michael, 12 weeks old. Is that right? Or five? Uh, 16 days old. Oh, gosh. 16 days old. <laughs> and and uh, our second, our, our first son is uh, two years old as of yesterday. So Congratulations. Um, thank you. Thank you. We moved the family down here. We're about 20 minutes from my folks now in Arizona. Um, so just getting used to it. I'm not teaching anymore. I'm working in a different field, local government, actually, Mike. Um, wow, way to go. So that's been, that's been really good. And my job, I'm, I'm very much blessed. I have the best job ever. Uh, we work local government. We're very responsive. We actually help people. And when it's quiet around here, I work with two other people and we do Bible study <laughs> at work, wow. which is fantastic. It's uh, like Christian parks with... and recreation. It, it's amazing. It's amazing. Cause I'll, I, you know, I've, I've got my laptop on top of my Bible right now. I sort of prop it up, but you know, we'll, we'll do Bible study and talk about these heavy issues, uh, politics and whatever, um, uh, in a, in an environment where normally that's not allowed. So it's really been, really been great. Yeah. So this is, this is kind of like open season then, you know, Michael, what first strikes you? Like, there's a couple of questions I want to ask Brandon just from what he said. Um, he's Brandon, an intelligent guy. Talk to him, ask him his motives for anything. No, so yeah, so what, Thanks, what, you, uh, yeah. what is it that woke you up when you were in, in politics in, in New York? Well, it was the it was the abortion question. Um, I, I think for me, becoming a new father uh, two years ago was very very uh, sobering. Uh, I was teaching in a school at the time, and and I went to. Um, uh, grad school at Harvard. So I, I sort of have been very close to the, the sort of woke movement from an outsider perspective looking in. Um, but getting that question at the door and, and telling people, look, I don't think abortion's right. I, I think it's wrong in every aspect. I also think that the state should decide on it uh, on a state-by-state -state basis. I think people should be able to vote with their dollars. Um, but just finding myself having to justify that position a lot really gave me a chance to clarify how I feel on it. Uh, and then, you know, going home and looking at my son and saying, how could I ever support something that would result in the in the destruction of this life? I mean, it's just it, it is not something that I agree with. I know everybody's got a different opinion on it, but um, that's what really pushed me toward a sort of renewal of faith um, where we were living at the time. I didn't like the local Catholic Church. Mike might get mad at me for saying that. Um, get mad at you for saying and, that. And then it's going to hell. You know, we, you're, you know, right. Jesus <laughs> exactly. is mad at you for saying sealed. that. Yeah. <laughs> my fate sealed. 
but I just felt that that God's been calling us ever since we got out here. Uh, local radio has uh, uh, Christian uh, broadcasting out here and met up with one of the local pastors and we live about a half mile from each other and his family's come over for dinner. And it, just a lot of these sort of things have fallen into place where before it felt like I was Catholic, but on an island, very far removed. You might go to church for 45 to 60 minutes a week. Um, and then you go back and then you're, you know, you're sort of on your own. And so I, I, I found a strong community here. That's really working for me. Well, that's a lot here. Yeah. So Mike, Michael will probably remember this. So several years ago, six, seven years ago. So I'm, I'm pretty pro-life myself and I was getting into it heatedly through social media with all these, uh, woke. I'm not Catholics. sure I remember this. I'm listening closely. Yeah, go ahead. We're all the woke Catholics, right? Yeah. I would get into it with them and I'm like, what am I even talking to these people for? You know, and most of them write for Pathios Catholic. I just want you to know. Okay. And uh, it just I, it was stunning to me that these people could give you the the pious Catholicism spiel and still be in support of abortion or at least of mm -hmm. a woman's right to choose or something. And they're all it's all it's pathological as far as I'm. We concerned. could stay on abortion and the Bible no, for the whole episode. Yeah. No, I used to press people. They'd say, oh, I support a woman's right to choose. And I'd say, choose what? What are we choosing here? Oh, choosing what to do with their body. Okay, well, at the same time you're calling it their body, you're also describing a fetus as a parasite that leeches off a mother. This is an argument the left makes a lot. And so it's like you can't really have both. And, and what I found, uh, Mike and I used to talk humanities a lot in, in, uh, in Geneseo. And what I find is the more that the language is controlled by, I think, fake Catholics, the worse... Uh, things become. And so you've, you've got where we can't define what a woman is uh, and all these other silly things that I'm like, you know, I'm, as Rush used to say, I'm a literalist. Uh, you know, if you tell me you're a woman, I believe you're a woman. I don't think it changes day by day. Um, and so I just, I found myself uh, like sort of racking my head against insanity everywhere I looked uh, in upstate New York running for political office, thinking that there was enough sanity to win. Um, but, uh, you know, it's just sort of interesting the way things are going out there. Yeah, it's disconcerting. Let, let me ask you, Brandon. So on, on like the abortion issue, I have to, on Sunday afternoon, I'm going to a parish in the diocese to kind of speak. Uh, in in the department I run, uh, the Office of Life Issues is one of them. And I'm, you know, I've probably got to give like a five-minute kind of fervorino on the pro-life. But the uh, we had a guest on a few weeks ago. It was Wilhelm and Sally. Remember them, Michael? You know, and mm -hmm. Sally, this is, again, kind of comes from my hero, Ivan Illich, but I think it's common sense too, is that so much of the language that we use for defending a baby in the womb plays in this language of like individual human rights, right? You know, and uh, we show a baby in utero and the notion, I think we kind of framing it in that way, sometimes framing it in murder too, I think is missing it. I think it's probably more the mm -hmm. fourth amendment that thou shalt not kill. Honor thy father and thy mother. So in the Catholic Church, we have an anthropology that we're persons in communion, right? That we're, you're an individual, Brandon, but you're also um, part of a, a unity of other people um, in the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. And so, you know. Paul um, talks about that in Ephesians. 
Yeah. You know, so one thing is like Simone Weil said, human rights don't exist in the absence of human obligations. But we tend to when we get when things water down to human rights, it's usually just clamoring for more, you know. But the other one is that um, when we frame the thing in, you know, the right of the baby to life, we're using a false anthropology that eventually redounds upon us. That if we saw that, like, society needs to protect everything to do with the mother-child relationship, like Chesterton said, the halo surrounds them both separate or even psychologists they look when a baby comes out of the womb they you know the lens of competitive individualism just doesn't work you know it's it's a mother child system i don't like that system language at all cuz it mechanizes it but um how do you frame this question you heard me say that uh you know kind of more about uh you know so if we had to change the world chesterton i can kind of evoke him on something he did with the lice epidemic when he said like a mother's love for her daughter's hair, he would flip the world. Like if we have to, you know, they were cutting the daughter's hair because of his lice. It wasn't happened to the elites. It was just happening to the poor. He said, if we have to protect the mother and the daughter, we need to, we need to have, you know, rents that are affordable. If we need rents that are affordable, we need to outlaw usury. If we need to outlaw usury, we got to bring down this. And he did a revolution of the whole world, you know? Hmm. And I find that very appealing. You know, uh, how do you frame the issue? And I want to talk about the Bible too, how you frame that thing. Go ahead. How do I frame the sense? issue of abortion yeah, being wrong? Is most of the language in the way you think about it, you know, when you use default language, is it like, yeah. you know, this baby think, has a right to life? Yeah, I mean, I think I don't, I don't frame it that way. Um, uh, and, you know, Rush, you say again, he's a literalist. And I think that if you're, if you're saying things like, um, you know, it's a human right, uh, you know, I think it's sort of a slippery slope. There's a professor out of Stanford, I forget his name, I think he's a neurobiologist who said that there is no such thing as free will. We need to outlaw this idea. This is very recent. And he yeah. said that, um, and, and I forget it, exactly the examples he was giving, but it was very interesting. And I think it's a slippery slope because I think it's, you can't in one sense say that we have human rights and therefore I ought to be able to kill a child if I so choose to. Um, and at the same time say there is no such thing as free will. Um, and I think that's really where we come into a lot of problems. I also think too, there's a sense that we're missing out on the um, the soul of the mother. I mean, I don't. I, I have known a couple of women who have gotten abortions. I don't know any of them personally who are happy about it. I don't know any of them personally who are glad they did it. Um, and then the way I always framed it is, there are a ton of people who, for whatever reason, God has not allowed them to have children. And there are a ton of people who would love to adopt a child. And I think in this country, we need to be linking people who want to adopt with people who are maybe not super happy about being pregnant. Because um, at the same time that we're killing babies, we're you know, letting our society prohibit other people who want babies from having them. And I think that we're really missing out on a, a big opportunity there. So that's the way I used to frame it is, you know, I'm not going to tell you what you need to do, but I think that we need to make adoption significantly easier so we can link people together. And so, and adoption has not only not become easier, it's become more difficult and more expensive over time, right? Yeah, say more. About I saw that, a thing like, that's like what's seventy five thousand dollars. Wow, wow. Is it all? Is most of those fees just under the ideas of like the paperwork associated? Or? Yeah. Uh huh. Um, I mean, I, the only thing that under that undergirds, I mean, there's there's such uh, and, and this is. There's such a disconnect because there is such uh, intellectual dishonesty mm -hmm. about 
what a what a a child in the in the womb is, because as we know, if, it, if it's wanted, you know, say you're three months pregnant, you know, you get the ultrasound and goes up in the refrigerator, and you, you know, there's that, mm-hmm. right? And if it's not wanted, it's it's a parasite, or right, it's it's other. And how does that happen? It's so intellectually dishonest. And pe- and I call people on it all the time, you know, that. This one person I knew who was ostensibly Catholic, who was about as pro-choice as you can get, and that her daughter gets pregnant, and I said, "Let me guess, you're you're all." She, and she got excited that she was going to be a grandmother. I said, "Well, I'm glad you're excited, but do you have a picture of the? You have do you have a uh, the the ultrasound on the fridge? Yes. I said, you already have a name. Yes. Brandon, what would you think about? You know, again, even in this kind of, mm. for me, this kind of Chestertonian revolutionary take, like you have um, one thing that having been involved through the campus ministry part of my life, the notion that students like who are in the, you know, the right to life movement don't care about the mother prior to or after delivery is crazy. That's kind of gone. Now, the students, again, mm. they're marching. I've never met one in the last 15 years that wasn't marching vociferously for that, too. But, you know, we have the, you know, the right to life is seen as kind of conservative in this country. And I think that isolates it. You know, there's feminists for life and everything, and they're wonderful. But the, um, like Victor Orban, again, you know, I guess, you know, where I think the issue isn't just saying we're going to take care of them. But what do you think about, like, if we made the mother-child relationship central, you know, that when women have babies, that they get, uh, you know, paid leave for three years, things like that. Or where do you stand just as somebody who had their foot in politics? Does that feel dirty to you? Um, you know, Orban is so popular I, with certain people here, the post-liberals, you know, is that changing the yeah. way they look at some of these issues too? You know, I think there's, again, I, I always work from a, from a, a blueprint of surplus, not scarcity. Mm-hmm. Everybody's so worried there's not enough to go around, right? Once we flip them. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. This is the that, same thing. <laughs> there's not enough. You know, yep. There's really not enough. We you need t- to elbow people out of the way. You talked me out of my economics double major by saying scarcity is a stupid concept. <laughs> it's a stupid concept, really stupid. I think that, um... oh, go ahead, Mike. No, I just, I was, people, people talk about scarcity. I mean, my gosh, we just, <laughs> a friend of ours just came this afternoon to get six bushel baskets full of vegetables because we have so much left over in our garden. Yeah, the amount of produce thrown out by Wegmans I mean, in yeah. Rochester. And, and, mm. And, then, and this, but the thing is, we've all been uh, conditioned by the scarcity baloney and the overpopulation lie since childhood. The overpopulation know? lie and interest, right? That money becomes scarce, you know, and you owe more as time clicks. So then time becomes scarce, right? If you think of interest, it creates reified time. Tick, 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 you're losing money. Then time becomes scarce. Kronos is, you know, dominant. Kairos has fled for the hills. And then we're foobard. No, go ahead, Brandon. Yeah, I think there are studies because you know it's always the the health and safety of the mother. Um, and I I've been there for two births uh, from our children, and thank God everything went fine. Um, but there are studies where people they they state the way in which they got pregnant, and you know self admitted rape or or incest. Thank God is a tiny percentage in the U.S. And there are a lot of young people who will openly admit that they get abortions simply as a way of birth control. And I think, you know, the idea that it's the health of the mother, that's an antiquated argument. And I think that if you 
accept that as I do, that it's an antiquated argument, no longer relevant. You have to look at it and say the only reason that we're still tolerating uh, the sort of pro-abortion crowd is because we're too afraid to take a stand against people who are unwilling to take personal responsibility for what they do behind closed doors. Um, I don't really think we should be rewarding people for getting pregnant. Um, but I also think the, the feminist movement has killed the idea of, of the beauty of motherhood. And I think that the idea that you can go out and have a career and be a mother, look, my wife tried it. She's hyper-educated, uh, insanely smart scientist, and it's in, incredibly difficult. And I would argue basically impossible. I think you need to choose one or the other. Um, and I think that the more that we kill the idea of motherhood as a calling, um, the more that we demean life and allow for things like abortion as birth control to take place. Wow. Yeah. Very cool. Let's, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to shift now, like, cause again, you're talking about your, your Bible studies. I'm just yeah. going with what you give me, you know, so Go for it. you, um, and it's not, this is not apologetics thing, but for a Catholic, the notion that, uh, like what's your understanding of the Bible, you know, lately my last, it's been almost probably six months, but my last, um, article at Front Porch Republic on a little thing I did on a religionless church was this thought that, you know, and people, the listeners have heard it, that um, A, you can make a case as a Catholic, the canon isn't totally unmitigatedly closed. You know who you can use for that, Michael, is Novalis, your buddy here. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that which came first, the church or the New Testament is one that kind of colors the way I look at it. And also when Jesus said, you know, so much more could be written that, um, this, uh, you know, that there's things even in the New Testament, you know, that I, I'm saying, you know, my hero, John Calpropawi said, only in the story of the Good Samaritan, do you get this, do you kind of rid yourself for a moment of all these good things you do, because there's a prickly God kind of looking over your shoulder saying, um, do this or you're going to be in trouble. You know, that can we even evolve in our Christianity, 2000 years after the incarnation. So we could say like, why are we praying to the God of thunderbolts and not the victims of thunderbolts? Why do we, why are we blessed? Why do we do this for somebody, you know, blessed are this, so this could happen. Why can't we just do the right thing for doing the right thing? So some of that leads me to believe that like the Bible is inspired, it's holy. You know, I think it was compiled by, you know, the, the different gospels and so forth. All of a sudden, you know, they're looking at the Jesus we meet in the Eucharist and so forth. What? How are you using scripture in your life? And I don't want to denigrate anything whatsoever. You know, I thought Guido was your hero. I'm getting <laughs> mixed things from you, sir. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you, you know, I I struggle, so I'm I'm doing, you know, reread through as people do, uh, very slowly, uh, marching through numbers right now, and um, and then I'll, I'll jump around to different letters from Paul. You're never going to get through numbers. Let me tell you, it's the worst. I'm I'm almost I'm on numbers 27. I'm I'm okay. almost there. Uh, but you know, I I struggle. And one thing that I, I mentioned to you the other day that I struggle with is especially to me, and I hate when I hate the whole uh the rapture is happening, you need to get saved kind of uh crowd of, of sort of modern day preachers. But uh, you know, I look at what's happening now and it's just sort of terrifying. And I think it's partly because I'm a father now, but you know, I'm sort of wondering what does the Bible say a good Christian ought to do in 2023 in light of so much obvious evil and destruction and denigration of life? I mean, Sound of Freedom characterized what's been there for a long time. Uh, we're 75 miles or so north of the border, which is wide open, and, and human traffickers bring people across all the time. Um, and I, I just, for me, I look at it and I say, um, 
where does the Bible tell me what I should be doing as a good Christian um, in the face of evil? You know, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Okay, but what about people who are suffering? You know, I can go out and be a, a good father and a good husband and provide and, and be, you know, faithful and all this. But um, there are people potentially down the road who are experiencing, you know, traumatic things. And one of the things I'm really struggling with, Mike, that I mentioned to you the other day is what does a good Christian, a good Catholic do? in 2023 and i don't know yeah i'm looking at michael i'm punting no just kidding <laughs> michael you have nothing there yeah there psalm go. 82 that's what a good, good catholic does or a good christian does defend the poor and fatherless do justice to the afflicted and needy deliver the poor and needy rid them out of the hands of the wicked and you can't be afraid right well, how many times does Jesus say, don't, why were you afraid or are you not afraid? And that's what I have noticed. And I think that's what happened. I'm just assuming, but it sure, surely seems like the case is that the woke Catholics over at Patheos got afraid of, you know, they really were afraid of not being invited to the cool kids table anymore. And they, they join the majority. Right. Um, and people are afraid to speak you know i you know i mean we saw this through covid right people are afraid to say what they really think and 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 actually to voice the you know to give voice to the the whisperings of the holy spirit that are that's within them that says something's wrong and they don't say it's wrong mm -hmm. right this is what we're dealing with right and that's you know i don't have that affliction but to my, not to my credit either um but i think this is what you see throughout the culture is it's a cult you know it's it's um capitulation on one side and uh it's demonic subversion on the other mm. you know i mean i you do i don't know if you guys saw this but i'm just a shock today um chris l terry you know mike he had he he he's he's been in rome you know he's, he's a reporter for the catholic world report and he just did this one on the father rupnik thing yeah that seems to be the villain du jour i mean un unbelievable and the pope just reinstated him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> i mean oh my god you know and why 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 you know and it just i mean so what, what's the solution though what 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 do we do that, that's what i struggle yeah. with i mean reject him yeah walk with your you know vote with your feet you know and this is what i i and i was talking who was i talking to um some um, this is what happened under the I, I was talking to and i was talking to an uh one of the people in my class is an episcopalian priest from california and he knows what i think because i don't hold back and he said that on during covid when when they shut down the churches for two years that he was he actually made an arrangement with a Catholic uh, convent down the street to let him do liturgy in their garden, even though his bishop told him not to offer liturgy, right? And and I didn't. And I told him, I said, "Man, it makes me feel so good to hear that." But you know what? I didn't. I know a lot of priests. I don't know one who did that besides you. Mm. You know, um, because. It, it, the part of the power structure, the way it, it the way it is, it's a control mechanism, and and, and this is what what happened with me is I got, I, in 
having young children at home still. I mean, they're not, they're now they're almost 13 and 15, but at the time that started, they were 10 and 13, 10 and 12, you know, and I go, well, we may can't go to church on Easter or any other day for how many, for how long? And no one's doing anything. There's no, there are no priests. They're always saying, nope, I can't do this. It's against the gospel. Did Jesus ever, you know, when lepers approached Jesus, did he say, well, are you vaccinated? You know? So, but even still, even still, you know, I, I, and I absolutely agree. I mean, but I'm sorry, I'm on a rant. Yeah, I have a no, it's good. I, I, I um, am on a lot of these, uh, Mike would call them conspiracy websites. Cause they're, they're, they're a lot of fun to look at. Um, and you know, it, it's like, when's the civil war going to break out? I had a friend who said, what do you think is going to happen? 2024. I said, I think the election's going to be stolen again. The American people are going to lament that it was stolen again, and they're going to go about their day. And you know, like I lived in, in New York, like, like Mike does. And, you know, I posted a thing the other day, never forget that during COVID you could go to the strip clubs and Walmart, but you couldn't go to church. And there was, and yeah, there was some duplicity there. Where it are the absurd. Catholics? Yeah. Yeah. Where are the Christians? I mean, we didn't you know, show up. We, we lament the sort of foolishness of going and fighting in the crusades, given that it was really sort of based on a land grab, but, you know, it's like, well, at least the Christians fought. At least they did something. Here yeah. we're going. I can't be bothered to go to church because I'm told not to by the government. <laughs> Are you serious right now? What kind of soft religion is this? Well, yeah, that's what I decided to, you know, and Mike knows this, because I've been writing about it for a few years now, is eventually we got to the point I said, we, you know, I'm, and it was really, I was really outraged when the bishop said, well, we're going to reinstitute the, the Sunday obligation now because we feel like it i'm like you bastards yeah yeah <laughs> you, you sold g you know who you don't you got better than 30 pieces of silver but you got something right mm. so and, and as guido said right you know um basically they, they got the, the message from the powers above them that said okay you guys play ball with us and we'll we'll let the we'll let the, the sex scandal stuff go away yeah, I, I was in a, I was in a church service one time. It was great. The homily was great. And it was a, um, I forget the exact term, but it was a guy who was going through the process of becoming a priest. And he's a former, uh, like stock trader in Manhattan, just like, you know, no holds barred. And he said, uh, for we can always sell God, but we can never buy him. And I was like, that's a line that's going to stick with me. <laughs> yeah. I love. But I, I, you know, I get frustrated that I went to a, a Catholic church, a Franciscan church out here recently. Uh, and, you know, near the end, it's, uh, you know, let's offer up prayers for our community and this, that, and the other. And for those who are seeking asylum, let's be open and open our doors and our hearts to them. And I went, wait a minute, what are we doing here? The, you know, the, the um, trafficking that's taking place, the abuse is taking place. There are people, you can read about it in, in local Arizona news who die every single day trying to cross the desert by, by traffickers, by coyotes. Um, mm -hmm. And yet I don't see, you know, it's just very frustrating. I was but talking explain to Explain my... the exact difference, you know, so you're saying, you know, you're praying for asylum seekers. Mm -hmm. Would you have, would you have, you know, I could see myself praying for that, but you're saying it's kind of missing the issue. Not that asylum seekers are bad, but we should be praying to like get some control. So I... there's not these horrors going on at the border. Like be, yeah, I think be we're adding water about... onto the boat. Okay. We're adding water onto the boat. We're stinking. I, I, I think, uh, you know, the the church and the idea of nation states, in my opinion, is sort of at a um, 
sort of at odds. Uh, and, and perhaps I'm wrong in this, Mike, you can sort of correct me, but the nation state uh, was, it's the most deadly thing in the world. It should be dying in our time. You know, we need kind of local, regional Rochester, Detroit, you know, it's city states that have always produced the culture, things you could walk across in a day or two at the max, but the nation state, you know, our friend, William Kavanaugh, who is on this thing since the French revolution at the French revolution, ask somebody in Brittany, you know, do you know of the nation of France? They're not going to say they do. You know, I'm Breton, mm. I'm Breton, right? But this mm. thing came, it's been really, really, really bloody. Um, it's, mm. it's its own religion. This is where the post-liberals are right. It's its own religion, the nation state. How do we define a nation state? It is that entity that has a monopoly on violence in a certain geographical territory. And as we're mm. seeing play out in the Middle East, the nation state, I hope it dies quick. We need we need small city states, things like that, and regions. We need larger mm. confederations. Um, what but do you think on that, Mike? Yeah, that's the threshold moment we're at, though, right? Yeah, I was actually speaking with this camera who it was. Um, so he actually mentioned the nation state. So what I've been working on this intro to Novalis for uh, for an Angelico press. What was his and Goethe's position on German unification? A friend just asked me that today. I would say their temperaments would be against it, right? You know, Bismarck and Goethe had nothing uh, in common. One was all left brain, one was right. I don't yeah. know any place where, I don't think it was an issue for them. Okay. But it was an issue for them was Napoleon, who was basically, he was the World Economic Forum of, of, the, of that period. <laughs> and, and, but the thing is, at that time, so, because Weimar and Saxony and, um, were, were separate city-states still at that point. Sure. There was it was a much Russia. more fluid uh, society, even in Germ just Germany, right? Yeah. But after Napoleon, that's when the, with the rise of the city state, because they're trying to protect them, themselves against a strong man for one thing, right? Mm -hmm. Don't let that happen again. But the other part of it, and I think that so that was a kind of a threshold moment. Absolutely um, was. All the great culture was coming from that part, like small city states. It was going to be another, it could have been another ancient Greece or ancient Rome where you had the city states. Germany right. was producing everything of culture at that time, you know, light years ahead of everybody else. And, and now we're at another threshold moment. And the thing is that threshold moments, you never know which way they're going to go. So at this, I mean, at this one, I mean, as you're supposed to use the trendy word inflection point, Michael. So one point well, off when here. I, when I wrote Transfiguration. I was kind of predicting where, where we're at right now. When it, when it's all when it all when the machine starts to run out of gas, right? Mm. It's going to start to implode. And hope in one side, what could come in its place would be localism and you know a, a, a small small is beautiful way of going about things, a sociological vision. But the other part of it is what it seems people are trying to to really have anticipated and are trying to make happen is is the one world government version right mm. so it could go either way right 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 yeah, everything i've seen happen you know we go from crisis to crisis right With that's those... why i think it's not left and right it's overworld and underworld no that's yeah. a big theme for me no go goes, so it goes from covid then ukraine and now mm -hmm. <laughs> ukraine out of the window and now it's the mid east right um and all this, I mean, it's all going down. And but you have to, and I saw this coming. I saw this coming in twenty seventeen when I wrote that book, but I didn't think it would come so soon. Um, but obviously, there are some players behind the scenes who who 
know it's about the petrodollars, about the cave and everything. So they're trying to, and this is why they're, I think they're pushing for uh, what's the cave? Central bank digital currency and things like this is because yeah. they know they're out of cards. So, but how yeah. how can they maintain power after it all falls apart? And I I'm, I don't think I'm a conspiracy theory theorist. No, the CBDC thing is for real, right? You know, that strikes me as a big part. Anything is real too. What's the what's the mm. what was that one? The fifteen minute city deal. What is that? They're already trying to get that happening. Oh, Mike. Yeah. I don't know, man. What am I missing? What am I not reading? Brandon? Well, they're trying. To, they're trying. Have you seen that? Hasn't happened here yet. It'll. It will be a long time for fifteen it. minute city. But, yeah. but the idea is that if you go beyond fifteen minutes from where you live on a day, you start to pay a search, search, service charge. Oh wow. Higher that tax. Could, that could lead to an increase in localism. You get penalized. Well, it's not. The- <laughs> That's exactly 15 minutes is the it's amount like of fame I have. Like according to Andy Warhol. Yeah. Localism. Yeah. 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 No, I agree. That's but, but that's, yeah. that's what they're pushing for. I believe. Right? I think I think Saudi Arabia has a test mm-hmm. or maybe it's just a it blueprint. Was. Yeah. They, the Saudi, I think Saudi Arabia has like a wall that's it's not that wide, but it's something like 10 or 11 miles long. It's something incredible where they have they envision people living in there with the idea like of like an apartment building in a, in a line yeah 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 yep i think they even call it the wall or something like that where everything you could want is within 15 minutes and so you never need to leave yeah so so brandon even going back i'm thinking of our guest last week and if people hasn't listened to it karen swallow prior really good evangelical background you know so when we were talking about like your entrance point but the um you know when, when you were talking about scripture i'm wondering and i you know i mentioned this this last week too that um you know, you're looking at scripture for some moral precepts or you're trying to find mm. how you should live. And I don't think what I'm going to say is in conflict with that, you know, but I think at these types of, uh, like Michael was saying, inflection points or whatever the word he used was, you know, there's, these are epical changes. Um, you know, I, last week I was mentioning, cause we were, we were talking a little bit about Owen Barfield that he looks at these, these moments that for him might be moving towards what he calls final participation. Brandon, you know, we've talked, it would be where, you know, when Brandon Gaylord, the more he becomes Brandon, the more he finds, you know, he's in oneness, you know, that um, the point being, you know, I like this image that when we go through these transitions, that history, it's not, it's not pure evolution, but any moment has its besetting sin and it's one needful thing, you know, and he would say Mm -hmm. right now, you know, this is, you know, one of the inklings and so forth, which doesn't mean he's right, but right now in this, this, I can feel my bones, he's right, that the, the the besetting sin is this literalness, whether it's scripture, you know, in the Catholic Church, it could be ritual as somehow magical, just do this, this kind of left brain weirdism, literalism, you know, but when what we need is imagination, you know, we got to think deeply on what we want our world to be. I always challenge mm-hmm. students, you know, used to be in that gold leadership program, Brandon, you're probably the leader, leader mm-hmm. of the gold leadership program. I was. I, <laughs> I would do, I would do, you know, using my hero powers. I would just do a workshop with students on leadership that, you know, when you imagine your life in detail, so, you know, I'm, I'm a college student and I'm interested in, okay, imagine your future. When you walk out of your door, are you leaving a pet behind, like a cat or a dog? Are you with somebody else? Are you married? Are you living suburban, rural, urban? Are you living north or south? Uh, do you have a McMansion? Is that what you want? Do you have cars? Do you have leisure time? But if you imagine your life in detail, Powys knew it's the most impo- important force to generate what that is. You, you are like manifesting it. You just start working towards it. All I ever wanted in life, you know, when we when we really get down to it, 
when we look at money, most of us are going to choose the right thing. All I wanted was a simple house where I could pay the bills, a work, some job that was kind of also like, you know, where work was also like play for me. I thought if I could have some chickens in the backyard running around and a goat and a nice fence for a garden and all those things have kind of materialized. But I think we need to do that as a society, too. None of us knows what they want in detail in detail. You know, I want a city state. I want a more regional economy that's not a 15 minute city. Um, so this entrance point to scripture, does it help you imagine the future in detail? Or are you kind of using Christian faith to kind of ward off bad mojo? Tell me how it feels viscerally for you, what you're looking for. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I'm, yeah, it does. I, I, I have, uh, just a, a beautiful family, beautiful house. You do. Great job. I know your wife, Janelle. Yep. Yeah, live four miles from work. I go home on lunch. I mean, I just have a great, great day-to-day -day life. And I find myself going to the Bible every day thinking that I'm not, there's no way I'm doing everything God's calling me to do. But it's just, it's, it, to me, it doesn't make sense. I look at what Paul did and, and, and some of these, these great examples, Francis and others, and the, the evangelizing or, you know, seeking to, to just spread the good news. And I think, I don't know, is it enough to just live a good life? Is, is a person who's struggling because, you know, they're the victim of say child trafficking or whatever, are they struggling because God's going to use them for some greater purpose that I just can't foresee? Or is God saying, you know, Brandon, I gave you two arms, two legs and a mind and a, and a body go out and do something about it. Um, and I, so I sort of find myself questioning not in the sense of like, am I doing enough? And I hate the idea of trying to game the system to get into heaven. So what do I need to do to be a good Christian so that I'm rewarded when I, you know, when God calls me home, but rather saying, you know, is God looking at me and saying, good job? Or is he saying, get off your butt? What are you doing? There's suffering in the world. You know, back in college, you flew to Biloxi. Maybe that was a bit misguided, but the intention was there. Now you, you know, it just, it almost feels easy to me that the sort of day-to-day you know, go to work, go home, take care of the family kind of thing. And I, I can't think looking at the examples of good Christians who've come before, I can't think that I'm possibly doing everything I could be doing. And I think that's why I get in the Bible as often as I do. It's hmm. a really good explanation. Well, you know, we talked about this a little bit with Karen last week. You ever see the movie Amazing Grace? I think no. I have, but when you guys described it, I, I guess I was probably just remembering. Really good, but there's, there's this one moment. So William Wilberforce is thinking about leaving politics in the film because he, he, he got, he got hit by God, right? He, all he wants to think about is God and nature and stuff. And what happens is these abolitionists come to have dinner at his house and that, you know, they say we heard you were thinking about leaving politics or serving God's word, God, God's doing the work of God. I would suggest you can do both, because I think what happens with our whatever vocation we've been given, I mean that's the idea, right? I mean, I, I, if I were to go in, you know, to you know, not that I have the skills, but to go liberate kids from child trafficking or whatever, right? Um. I would probably be shirking my duties as a father because you know this you hear these stories about these activist parents or whatever they or, or even pastors 
what they what happens is they ne- neglect their own kids and so their own kids become problematic later no and that's that can be true in the pro-life movement right you're spending every day down at the abortion clinic and you're neglecting yeah, your own kids. but what can you do i mean you know is that great poem by uh tesla milos on angels and how it ends with day breaks another one do what you can right mm. so that's i think that's because we always want to we got to do what we can but it doesn't mean to do, you need to do everything. I, I was talking to my coworker the other day and she's, she's uh, closer to your age, Mike, than mine. Let's just say that. That's and, she's uh, about 80 or something. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, never and she's an opportunity to slam. <laughs> <laughs> she's got more hair than you, but that's okay. Uh, and she's been in, you know, Bible studies for forever and she can, you know, she's, she can quote scripture off the top of her head. You could say what's Romans eight, 12. And she can tell you. Right. And I said, you know, what would you do if somebody, you know, theoretically was attacking your family? Oh, I'd defend my family. Okay, well, how? Well, I'd, you know, deadly force, whatever. And I said, okay, great. So we're willing to use, and me too, and we're willing to use deadly force for our own family. What if you saw somebody else being attacked and you knew that it was not a, say, a justified attack, it was some victim being attacked, you know? And so I, I think you can extrapolate that out. Like I would do whatever it takes to protect my wife and two children. Would I do the same to protect others? And aren't I shirking my duties as a Christian if I, don't i mean isn't doesn't jesus say what you do under the least of these you did to me i mean how how is it whether it's the abortion movement whether it's child trafficking whether it's domestic violence how is it that good christians can tolerate bad things happening if they have a desire to stop it from happening well the thing is then you get to the point where you're immobilized and i I always use an example with students i said you know my life's pretty good. I, it's okay. You're, you're filling gas in, in your tank, right? Now, once you trace that that gasoline back to the field where it came from, how many people had to die for you to get that gas in your tank? Mm. You know, how many people in the Mideast were blown to pieces during whatever war so you could have gas for $2.80 a gallon or whatever? Um, which it can be overwhelming, right? It can be uh, mm-hmm. debilitating for people. Um, but that, I don't, I don't ask about the gas I don't I ask have in my tank right now. Reason. I ask, you know, I'm just trying to get students just to think about mm-hmm. anything because we take everything for granted and we think, you know, my look at my new iPhone. Okay, well, <laughs> how many how many kids enslaved in Nigeria? had to Amen. work the cobalt for that right i mean you can make yourself nuts with this kind of stuff but you know i think we are given tasks to do we don't all have the same vocation and that's the, that's the difficult thing is everybody has a different vocation right um listening and trying to discern what your own vocation is is an important thing and it's important to able to actually hear when you're getting a message to switch vocations as well right um no one let no one can live measure up you know but but on the other hand you can make yourself insane by that kind of uh, you know and this is what i was <laughs> this these feeling you could you could you can become a psychological mess by, mm-hmm. but, well, it becomes a kind of uh, 
inverse uh, messiah complex you know yeah i wonder too you know i thought the greatest for me i've mentioned my you know hero stephen visinci this hungarian author you it, was, it was the notion what's that <laughs> i do i do it's like polytheism, right? The thing is, they're living. <laughs> After the incarnation, all these people, Shakespeare, like he lived. This is the new polytheism that everybody's hungry for. You know, everybody's doing their, you know, they're they're fighting all these gods outside. I'm like, they came and they walked. Um, but the notion of um, this is what led me to Berjaev, I mentioned, like anti-consequentialism. So, you know, Brandon, you're talking about like if we would defend our family, but then some people could extrapolate you know, I we begin we begin with the near at home, but anti-consequentialism would be so many people do so many evil things um, to 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 try and ward off the thing they think that's going to happen, which is bad. So on the other hand, like so, what he proves, the great novelist proof again in my continual and perpetual and war to the end war with the left brain. You know, everybody thinks the world is much more rational than it is. You know, so Vizinchi said most of our misfortune. No, this was probably Stendhal quoted by Byzantine that most of our misfortunes in life come from false notions of what's actually happening to us. Therefore, mm -hmm. to judge events sanely is a great step towards happiness. So Stendhal and so forth, his novels, they call to mind that like what we, where we think we feel safe and where we are safe is probably diluted. Uh, what we think is going to happen in the future, you know, we got involved again in Vietnam because we thought the domino theory of history, which is the craziest thing ever to happen. If Vietnam went communist, all of East Asia was going to go communist. So we go in there and lose half of our nation. How about we begin with, again, and there's when it's really close to home, you know, but if somebody came in your house trying to shoot your two kids and Janelle, you're going to do something. But as soon as we get outside and scale a little bit, or or we try to syllogize two steps before, we start to become immoral. Like, you know, Kennedy's assassin said, I did it for my country. Mm. Well, did the country get a lot better? You know, or just don't, don't kill the president. You know, don't shoot abortion providers, um, things like that. But uh, I think it's numbers says that we're supposed to uh, treat Christians, non-Christians, and I know it's Old Testament, but, you know, we're sort of supposed to otherwise. I mean, so they're yeah, a minor thing, uh, maybe not the best part, but it's not the um, gospel. I mean, let's say, you know, uh, I, I don't know, like, so does it. Is it physical boundaries that limit where a Christian's supposed to take action? I mean, the lunatic shoots in a church a couple of years ago, a guy pulls a gun and kills him. Well, maybe it was just him and his wife there. And what if they had gotten out? Does he say, thank God I got out? Or does he owe responsibility to every other Christian there to protect and defend him? And if if he does, where do those boundaries end? Is it the physical church? Is it at a fairground? Is it in a city? Is it in a country? I mean, I, I think that's kind of where I'm struggling is where well, scale, does scale is a big thing you know and again that's my whole thing at if you go from the local to the large so many of these otherwise moral quandaries that we solve in terms of like abstract rationalism or left right religions of left and right when you look at scale you know um you get at it that things certain things out of scale that's become a completely different beast you know i'm always waging war at this notion that this universe is inherently and objectively just so 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 big where imagination can tell you it can be big or small depending on where you are you know and so when we get when we get out of scale you know we have to solve the world's problems and so forth that you know morality that's why these moral codes of a certain use of the bible they can just bring so much warfare to this world you know jesus said don't worry about tomorrow that's a pretty good scale he thought the day was a pretty good time you know eckhart tolle would say that now is a pretty good time 
you know, mm. with it, if we work in the now, living in the present moment, that's a pretty good one. Jesus, he had some regard for the day, um, as does Pope Francis, like one day at a time. Mm -hmm. But once we start predicting out, we're just, just st statisticians can say, we're really, really likely to be wrong. Then we start, you know, using mm. fancy logic to justify evil. So keep things close to home, keep things close to the now and the day. Um, and we're going to have a lot less violence. So most of the violence in the world comes from people who are using just, you know, false notions of what's going on and a false knowledge that if you do this, this will happen, right? Look at every quagmire, right? Every, every quagmire we start. If um, we bomb Iraq back into the stone age for women's rights, you know, for Laura Bush. <laughs> Heavy. Brandon, let's talk yeah, about some, education. Some freedom yeah. today. I got to see that. I might watch it tonight. Um, you haven't Michael, you didn't it? know. No, I haven't seen it yet. I think I'd like it. Yeah. Have you seen it, Michael? You what? Um, Sound of Freedom. Sound of Freedom. No. No, I haven't. Oh, been. come on. You guys got it. That's watch the, movie. the movie. That's the movie. I know I want to watch it. That's the movie, Michael. In the summer, people were saying the air conditioning. No, no, I, know what it, I know what it is. Oh, okay. yeah. 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 Go see it in the theaters because he said that the, the company tried to ban it for five years. They had to wait to get it out. And you can get bootleg copies, but when you see it in the theater, it supports the blah, blah, blah. Okay. You know, there was another, just to go back, it was a movie I watched a month ago when we had uh, your friend, Mr. Kikasola on, Michael, about film. He had wild. mentioned a movie about a deaf drummer called The Sound of Something. And it's a Christian movie. Cool. It's about a, a guy who lost his hearing. And that's a profound movie about conversion. You don't have anybody watch that about how God moves through grace to turn mm -hmm. people towards others and so forth. But uh, education. Mm -hmm. Uh, Michael's a Waldorf teacher, Brandon. You've thought a lot about education. I think you went. That was your, your post, your, your I mean, your graduate work was in education. What's wrong with the schools? What do you think and fix them? How much time do you have? Uh, <laughs> scrap them all. <laughs> scrap them all. All the public schools. I, I think that um, I think there's so much inherently wrong with them. Even if they're performing to the level they're they're supposed to, I think what they're supposed to perform and achieve is not what we're what we're uh, expecting from a society. Uh, I, you know, I drive around here, it's Friday today. I drive around here and there's no school on Fridays. That's cool. And I'm like, really? I like it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you like it because you kept your kid home <laughs> one day a week every year. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, I look at it and I go, okay, so we have really awful, awful outcomes. Uh, State of Oregon just recently said, you don't need to be able to master reading, writing, or math to graduate from high school. So we have these like, abysmal outcomes. So the best thing to do is to cut 20% of the week so that you can go and I'm all on for TikTok it. longer. That's why we're talking education. I'm all for it. less school, less school. I think the thing is the right amount, right? You're all for it yeah. because no, they don't think you're all for it because you supplemented your kid's income with uh, experiential learning at home, which is brilliant. No, I think um, when it's learning in square roots, depending on, on what we mean by school. So life is, again, the lilies of the field, and the birds of the air. You know, everything can be teaching you. Um, and so yeah, some subjects. These kids are not getting it. They're not getting I, it. I get way. that. We're not saying close the schools right now. And Michael's going to have a lot to say. But like schools, um, sitting in square rooms with people your own age under fluorescent lights, you know, the medium of schooling, the liturgy of schooling, it's proven to be a little more religion than real, but um, it seems to work meeting every day in 45 minute segments with people your own age, moving through a math year. 
seems to work pretty well learning a language, getting exposure every day. It seems antithetical to a deep learning of history or English, you know, literature or that. Science should be done much more outside some of the practical stuff. So certainly less time. I'm not saying less time being educated or engaging in education. We need a lot less schooling. We need longer summers. I would die on that hill. Because yeah. they're wasting so much of the time. School. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that that assumes that it's being supplemented by some other kind of learning. I mean, I taught. We need a revolution uh, I, or regeneration. Yeah. yeah, I only taught in urban schools, and and this is not a, a criticism of urban areas or, or parents, students, or teachers there, but a lot of what I saw was if my students weren't in school, they were not learning. They were on video games, they were TikTok, they were playing basketball, which is you know great. There's some value there, I suppose, but it's not like they're out wandering through the forest and talking about you know William Blake and why Mike thinks he's the greatest poet of all time. Um, it, you know, it's just if if there's nothing to fill the gap, then there's nothing to fill the gap. And I think what's filling the gap is not working. It needs to be scrapped. I don't disagree. Michael Martin. Well, I don't know how to fix this, but it's, it's a, it's a problem of culture. Um, we don't live in a, we don't have, I mean, when I was teaching in, in inner city, um, most of those students, and this is in college, when I was teaching college weren't prepared and weren't interested in being prepared. N not all of them, but quite, but there was not a, a um, and you compare that. In fact, a friend of mine was teaching at a inner city place in Seattle, but most of the, uh, the student body were children of immigrants, like from Eritrea or China or wherever it happened to be, right? Who's, but their families were serious about education. And those kids went to school and they learned even though they were so poor, right? Um, and you even look at demographics. I mean, one of the, the, the one minority that gets ripped on for education is our Asians, right? And the reason being is because education is being educated is the, in China, Chinese culture for sure, is the, is the ideal of the, of the Confucian, um, ideal, right? Is to be educated and to, to know, to be well, well informed. Um, I don't know how to change our culture into one that is that, like that. And I'll tell you what, in my 20 some 25 years of teaching college, I've seen. And the kids who come to college now are. Now only are they are they uninformed. The only thing they're informed about is social justice bullshit, um, but they can't generally they can't think and don't and they have never been asked to think. And, and the thing is, when the way I teach even when I teach English or writing, I teach like a philosopher um, because I want them to think. And, and that's what, you know, I, to consider things and actually to not, uh, uh, you know, the old the old fashioned college professor thing of challenging their assumptions. Well, you have to have an assumption to challenge it, but to, to push them to think, you know, is for a lot of them, when you see them finally, the light goes on and they're like, wow, I mean, I'm allowed to say this in the college. <laughs> Yeah, um, but I don't know. I mean, this is this is so tough, and I but you, it it comes it, it and I don't there's I don't know how to do this. Um, there has to, you know, you have to have enough of the the culture, enough people in the culture have to they have to think that education is valuable for it to reach a tipping point. And right now we don't have that. So what we have instead are 
subcultures like the homeschooling movement, for instance, or other kinds of subcultures. And this is we talked about with Karen last week, and she was talking about precisely this, where you know, and we've talked about it before, like the idea of a hedge school, because you don't want to have your child educated in the system of describe a head school to Brandon if you haven't read your Irish history, Brandon, which I thought was a precursor to inviting you on, but I can't think you failed. Go, Michael. <laughs> well, that's the, like the head schools where the, the heaven in Ireland under British rule and the Irish families did not want their kids learning British history and, or British uh, religion. So they had these kind of uh, clandestine schools that would meet not really in hedges, but in barns or something. And, the, and the, the, the parents, and this is poor people, right? This is not wealthy people. The parents would pitch in to, to uh, pay or feed the schoolmaster who would, who would give them a solid education. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was cultural, right? And you see, that, you see this with uh, uh, Frederick Douglass, right? In his narrative of a slave, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where it, it means something and it's valuable. And we live in a culture right now, education-wise, that, as you pointed out, Brandon, tells us knowing math or anything is not important. In fact, it's racist. Racist, right? yeah. And, and it's but, those but Asians who can do not, the math that are racist. This is, a way to keep, What's the, uh, <laughs> this is a way to keep the population fat and stupid, right? Yeah. Um, and that's why our buddy, Ivan Illich, I mean, I, and I agree with him, School is basically a waste of time. It's inefficient. And I know this from homeschooling my kids because homeschooling is so much more efficient than parochial schools or public schools. Yeah, you know, Brandon, he would would show that if you have somebody, yeah, right. If you're politically engaged, he could teach illiterate uh, Mexicans, you know, to read in two weeks, you know, when you want something. You know, this is all Kairos and Kronos again, you know, go back. We live, school is based on, you know, buzzers, routinization and so forth but there's another lilies of the field birds of the air type of learning that's you know michael's pointing to that when people want to learn something they can learn it so fast so the the, so that's the thing you can do it when you get it you can learn it so quick the other one is that it's been proven that what you learn in this other model of schooling where i think you think people should spend more time is they're not learning the content it's the liturgy right the medium is the message they're learning they can't name uh, 20 of the 50 states but they know that learning, or they think they know that learning comes in these weird segments of 45 minutes with people their own age under fluorescent lighting, things like that. Right. So a cu- couple of thoughts. So one, <clears throat> I think the micro school movement is very, very strong. Say and, more about uh, it. Micro school is sort of what, what Michael was describing is just small, small schools. I mean, it might be a retired teacher or whatever who's, who's just putting themselves out there. They're going to teach five or 10 students and that's it. Um, and they're going to do it from their home. They're going to rent a space in a church, wherever. Very strong. Uh, I'm working with a local church that uh, here in, in Arizona that we're going to be starting a Christian school because uh, we've got one in town and they have a waiting list. Hmm. Um, and the schools here are so absolutely awful, in my opinion, that you know something has to be done. The other thought that I had too is, you know, the uh, Islamic schools from uh, you know hundreds of years ago. The way that they used to do Eastern education was. Um, people would seek out different imams that they wanted their children to learn from and they would appeal to that imam. And then you would sit, if you're one of these students, you would sit with eight, 10, 12 other students of various ages in a circle with the imam. And you would all talk about philosophy, astrology, religion, math, science, whatever. 
And so you learn from various different people. The way we have it now is just, I think, stupid. <laughs> and it's absolutely insane. You know, and and I've I've applied for jobs and uh, where, you know, students are taught to track the speaker, meaning your eyes follows the speaker wherever they go. Uh, you ask to use the restroom and you are usually told no. All these silly things that, uh, you know, just very basic education theory tells you undermines any chance of learning. Uh, if a student needs to use the bathroom, they're not going to learn Pythagorean theorem. <laughs> I mean, if they don't know it already, uh, it's just not going to happen. Um, My attention is elsewhere. Yeah. Right. And I think, you know, I was thinking about this the other night. Uh, I taught in a charter school for a number of years and I, I love my charter schools that good and bad with them. But, you know, to get funding for a charter school, you have to teach, I think it's one day over the median number of days in a school year or in a, in a calendar year. So you've got to teach something like 190 days. That you have to be in session. I'm like, OK, so if if high school, say, is four years and you have to be there for a minimum of half a year, can we just do it in two years and go full year and like speed this up, you know, get kids graduated two years early, maybe get them an internship with various different trades, find out what they want to do for a living, what interests them. Um, but it's it's a whole system. It's a process. It's a uh, school is not about free thinking. It's about conformity. Uh, mm -hmm. It's even more so post COVID. I taught pre, during and post COVID. And, you know, when I taught my first year before COVID, I was teaching Socratic seminar style and it was fantastic. Um, I had students I'd write on the board a resolution like the United States has a responsibility to people who enter our country illegally. And students had to pick a side that they wanted to be on on that argument. They had to research it. And then they sat across from each other and they had to, you know, it was Robert's rules and they had to be respectful and they argued their point. And it was fantastic. And then COVID hit and everything changed. Yep. And I think that, I think that the, the race out of education as is, is, is one of the quickest things um, that's out there. And I think this LGBTQ, you can be whatever you want. Uh, furry movement is just, I think, adding fuel to the fire of people who are leaving but, uh, it's by the public school movement. It's, it's bad design. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. The war on children, I think, is the biggest war in this country. And mm -hmm. I think public education is where it's being fought. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. Interesting. Brandon, you bring up a subject. We'll give one more subject. Anything uh, you'd like to talk to with, uh, you know, Michael Mart, some people never get a chance to talk to him in their whole life. Oh, let me show you something I'm eating. In, grape pie, grape pie. Did you ever have that, Mike? It's a Michael. It's a, yeah, it's a local grape. Rochester thing. Grape pie. No, we don't have that. Yeah, it's it's hard because you have to skin all these concrete. What's that? Have you had? Have you had what a ground cherry pie before? No, that's a Buffalo. I mean, that's a Michigan. Ground cherry is actually in the tomato family, mm. but they're really little, kind of a golden brownish color. But not the most appealing thing looking thing but they make the greatest pie huh. like a, i thought it had to do with the prevalence of cherries in michigan up near traverse nope. city and so forth and okay. nope interesting so uh, <laughs> yeah. question for you too then um i have I, i've grown kind of i love my catholic faith i don't really like the modern day catholic church um i don't oh. like the personal preference i don't like the very well lit uh, churches that are loud and there's no pews and you know it's just you're a you know, I like track. my churches you're a red track. I like my churches dark and solemn and quiet yeah like and, I said you're a red you know, that's the cool. pews on the pews that's uncomfortable really cool. uh the the Catholic Church is, as I think everybody knows is shedding numbers uh in five ten years where do you two think the church will be or what what do you think is up next for the church? Uh, I think you know, as the you church is headed the same place education is headed. 
I think they're both in a, in a state of implosion. And I, I think, well, <laughs> I think it's an opportunity and I hope it happens where um, the power is taken away from uh, whether it's the state in the case of education or uh, the Vatican and the state in the case of the church where it's taken away from them. They might not know it's been taken away from them for a long time, but I think what we're seeing in the things we've been talking about today, you know, and I, you know, taking just, you know, finally ignoring the power structure and talk about acting locally and seeing what needs to be done right in front of us. I mean, it's not like I have to, I don't have to write a manifesto to get the Vatican to shape up or anything. I can just, or, or education, I can just do it where I am or start where I am and start to circle up that way. And I, and I, and it's the same thing with, you know, where we have, we run a biodynamic CSA here. And as I mentioned, we had somebody pick up six bushels of, of vegetables today. Um, but you see the same thing in that, that aspect of the current state of human civilization where most people get their, get their food from Walmart or, you know, wherever the big, the big box grocery chains. But there's also a lot of people who buy locally, right? Who, in fact, the people who came here today, our friends, um, we get a, a raw milk from them since we sold our cow and they get, they get all these vegetables from us. And there's kind of an exchange this way. In fact, even this morning, I, I went to visit my friend, he, his name's Barry and he's a potter. So I call him Barry Potter. Wow. And I went over to his place because he last time I saw him, I gave him a jar of honey and he said, Hey, come over. I got some blackberry bushes for it. So I went to get the blackberry bushes and I brought him a bottle of mead and he gave me a whole bunch of blackberry mushrooms. This is potlatch. This and is surplus. Gave, yeah. And then he gave me, actually, it was really cool. He gave me a. Then he gave you his one of his wives. A coffee mug that he just made. Yeah. <laughs> but, he but gave you like 50 of his slaves. It escalated. But <laughs> that kind of stuff. You know, it yeah. subverts the structure. It does. And the thing is, it, it, in, it, in, it subverts that, that phony structure that's, that we have, have mm. paid allegiance to for whatever, just be out of habit. And then you realize this is what a real parish is. That a parish, you know, so often in Catholic parishes, you know, they, they're these big, and that's what Dorothy Day called it the long loneliness, right? This Wasn't big, Addison Hodges hard on that, great on that, Michael, when we had him on? Yeah, but then when you come, you know, I'm dealing with Barry and these people, that's what a parish is. That's what it's supposed to be, right? Um, it's it really is acting local, and then the people now Barry's a little older than I am, and his kids are all grown. But the other people, they have they have younger kids. They homeschool them. They're part of this subversive <laughs> country network we have out here. And but they're also they also you know, in fact, Bonnie just before I came in here, I had lunch, and and she's been making fermented vegetables so and they, so these 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 women swap fermented vegetables and stuff so you have all this really healthy food because you don't want to leave it to somebody else anymore mm -hmm. you've got you got to the and i think it's the same thing with education and faith 
you, you we have to we, well what's going to come is uh, uh, it gets to a point where you, you you get tired of outsourcing your power in those situations to people who don't deserve it yeah i, I was going to say in, in new york state and that's an interesting point in new york state to be a history teacher and my bachelor's degree is in history and then my master's is in history education but to be a history teacher i think you have to take two classes in college only what are you actually learning? Yeah, <laughs> it's just, it's absolutely crazy to me. And I think there's a certain certain sense of empowerment that comes, you know, I tell people all the time, we're homeschooling our kids 100%. And, mm-hmm. you know, oh, the socialization and this, that, and the other. And what, if, you know, they're not going to learn. That's a funny word. And I said, look, yeah, my, my wife and I have four degrees between us. And nobody's going to teach our kids the knowledge or love on them the way that they need to be loved on better than, better than she and I are. But I think there's a lot of power in that. And uh, that's education. I think that's going to continue. I think the fracturing of public education is a huge one and they have no way of combating it. And I think COVID is really what brought it about mm-hmm. um, because then they said you can do education online and it's like, okay, then great. You can, as a student, now, I think it's actually, yeah, I think it's really exciting time to be a, a student right now because you can take classes from professors at Stanford, Harvard, Princeton, you know, all these amazing universities from the comfort of your home, which is fantastic. Whereas before you had neighborhood schools, which maybe weren't very well funded. Um, but then I think for religion too, and, and Mike, I think you would love this. If you were to visit me, Mr. Sauter in Arizona, and you should, um, I'll take you out to, we have a, to the a Grand church Canyon? Here called Cowboy. Grand Canyon? We, we, we have a church here called Cowboy Church. Ah. And I think, it, you know, you would like something like that. Basically, people bring their horses trailered to uh, a dirt dirt parking lot where they unload them and they go into mass and then they go out and they ride afterward and they all sort of gather and have communion together. And it's fantastic. And we have yeah, yeah. 10 different kinds of churches in our small little city. So I think that there's a sense of empowerment and then meeting people where they are. That's really kind of incredible. And you have some of the culture again, that like, you know, my new job, it has the migrant uh, churches. I kind of oversee them for the diocese and there's life there and there's much more as opposed to this kind of antiquated, you know, I was, I was laughing at you when you're talking about these uncomfortable pews and so forth, you know, but the vibrant churches are ones that come from seemingly like Mestiza blood yeah. under the patronage of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And they look very different than what the rad treads are kind of go. But I need to say this in addition is that um, I don't think we talked about it once, Michael, but we'll have to do like, you know, a three a three show series on it. But I have a feeling that we won't find the real church, which I would call religionless church not bonhoeffer's religionless christianity because that's just saying like religionless religion christianity it's a religion in the french again in france or before you didn't know you belonged to a religion called christianity you belonged to the church the nation state told you oh you belong to a religion it's called christianity it's kind of like islam but it's different it's kind of like judaism which is a, a nationality in time but it's different right then we we internalize this weird stuff religionless christianity is a religionless religion a religionless church is something, but that's um, a word salad. But I don't think we're going to be able to do it unless I almost think we could look at what a rejuvenated form of education looks like and a rejuvenated form of economics looks like. Right. So Michael will hear me talking about Rudolf Steiner's social threefolding that when if we take an initiative in in what medicine needs to look like in this time, you know, post covid for profit medicine, what's wrong with it? What can we learn, honestly, from natural healing and so forth, from indigenous traditions? Mm. Let's do a mashup. If we work on that, we're inversely working on this other system, which is creating a space for what the church is supposed to look like in our time. And if we work on a new kind of federated politics, um, whether we need um, 
more decentralization in America, you know, that's my thing or a larger Congress, I have no idea. But if we if we get the political realm, you know, working on the themes of liberty again, uh, then that church that's being born in our time, the new and the shell of the old, because this one's dying. I think we have to be working on all fronts. You know, it's like whether it's Alice through the looking glass or Alice in Wonderland, you know, when you're going down one path and you arrive at the real path, we got to be looking away and the thing we need grows. But if we focus on, if we do try to think of what the new church should look like, it's going to be really tyrannical, political, and like weird, because it's going to be some power obsessed person's brain, I think. Well, I, I think, but actually all that we've been saying here is essentially, these are all the parts, but it's actually, it's the West where Christendom is dying. Yeah. Right? Or the shadow of Christendom. And that's why I think um, like the EU, John Milbeck likes to point out that, that the, the, the symbol for the EU of the stars was was based on the book of Revelation and, and the Virgin. Yeah, but it seems like a demonic parody to me. Yeah. Um, but I think with with all that you just mentioned, Mike, I mean, this is comes up a lot with me these days where people talk, well, we have to get the church to do this. Whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean by that? That those two words, the church. We are the church. Well, no, it depends. I mean, you talk to different people. You get. I mean, I talk to an organ and want to answer. You get talk to a, you know, um, hyper evangelical Protestant. You're going to get a different answer. You talk to a, a Catholic. You know, going to get a different answer. And and that's and herein lies the problem. Hmm. And I, and I don't, you know, and I think in almost all those instances, usually the answers you get are some kind of glittering generality that sounds pretty, but it doesn't mean anything. And well, it's, doesn't, yeah. doesn't Paul define the church? Who? What? Doesn't Paul, doesn't Paul define the church? Doesn't he say Give that? Give us his like definition said, as you see it. Yeah. That doesn't Paul say that we are the church, a bride adored for Christ? Oh, I would say again, the church is that entity that takes its nourishment from the Eucharist, you know, in one sense. Um, and not the Eucharist is infinitely variable, but again, I think it's this organic thing. It's a hydra headed beast, this one in many. And I think it could probably, um, you know, Solovia of short history, the Antichrist, you know, or Olivier Clemence, you know, when a Pope, I think Pope St. John Paul II, you know, tasked all these people to write about papal primacy, you know, this notion of uh, the Protestant church being the charism of Paul, the Eastern church having the charism of John and the Catholic church having the charism of St. Peter. You know, that Paul was right on circumcision against Peter. So, you know, when we start to see that, you know, the, there's possibilities of where this church, it's poetic, Michael, you know, and I'm not saying that it's anything, but like, how do you, Michael, how do you resonate with some of those things that are put forward? Can, can we get any traction with those? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I always like, I mean, what, what, what John Paul was drawing on there was Solovia, right? Yeah, right. Um, and, but I don't, I I, I just think, I don't think we know what the church is. I think we think we know what the church is. Um, and and this is the problem I mean, for us growing up in the Catholic tradition, right? Is we, it's so easy for us to conflate this idea of the church with the hierarchy, right? The church says we have to do that. But well, doesn't Illich yeah. help us there? Like, it, I, I think, and sorry to interject, you know, that the hierarchy, it just works for me. Like, that's the skeletal structure. And again, people do conflate it, but it's on us. The skeletal structure of the church, which carried the Gospels, like, as if in its ribcage uh, for 2,000 years. You know, it's it's necessarily, so he would call that as the church as it. 
but it's skeletal, like the human body, the flesh and the blood and the fact that if I rip a hair off my arm or here, where do I end some of that mystery about the church? That's the church as she. Um, you know, and again, I think we've been given some pretty fructifying metaphors and images, poetic ones to work with in our time. I don't feel as out in the desert as you do, but I don't want to pretend that I sound like I know what's coming, you know? It's very well, Marian. I'm not talking about in the desert. I'm just saying, I don't think we nobody really knows and nobody. Yeah, I don't disagree. Yeah, yeah. Brandon. It, and there's yeah, certainly I, I, no conversation. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know either. All I know is I love, like I said, my, my dark churches. We went to Italy, <laughs> I don't know, three or four years ago, and it was just fantastic. We got back, and like the day we got back, we're like, okay, when we retire, we're going to retire to Italy. We're going to go to Florence and get a little condo. Oh, I think you need to talk to Guido Preparata. We'll have him on. I'm going to call yeah. him right now. Fair Every enough. small and, town is being shut down. You know, you know this thing he says, the biggest thing in Italy is, you know how you have to sign a code to check your email to get another code to check this? He said in Italy, that layer of like shit that's being buried under burying us right now, he goes, it's like five times as more powerful. To get on a train, you need to send a code to your wife who sends you a code to do this. Geez. And then finally a, a QR code comes up and you get the train or something. Well, then we're going to hang on to Italy in our minds the way yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but we love just... You know, we had no plans when we were there. And so when we were in Florence, which was amazing, uh, and, and then Rome, you know, we were just walking around and popping into these old churches. And I just, I feel like the church that I grew up in, the old church where as a young kid, if I said something and I wasn't supposed to be speaking, my grandfather would slap me on the wrist and say, you know, we don't talk in church. Uh, you know, it, like that church itself is is dying, and I think yeah, that you could recreate that in your like the, your Elks Club or something if you want to. I just don't think that's right. The I think create the same atmosphere. Of I like think the, authority the cowboy, and fear. right? I think the cowboy church idea is is yeah. going to I take like off, not literally, but I think that I think that uh, the church meeting people where they are. Yeah. Um, you know, that's I think for language. the longest time, the Catholic Church and and really all churches were okay with people coming in and doing church for 45 to 60 minutes a week and then going home. And people are not willing to do that now. And I think the church needs to meet people where they are the same way education needs to do that. And right. so I think it's going to just have to adjust. I'm not sure what it looks like, but it's going to have to adjust. Brandon, it's been a really great having you on the Regeneration podcast. Any final words? Do you have a, can you tell us all about your books and all your different websites and things? No books, no websites. <laughs> You're uh, just only book is a, I'm just the, I'm just the guy who spends uh, not enough time in the Bible. So that's, yeah, that's yeah. Uh, a guy pretty simple I met man. in Biloxi <laughs> and I've been uh, fortunate to keep in touch with ever since. So uh, Brandon, I, you, thanks you, so much. You blew my mind in Biloxi that in uh, the whole Carol Quigley thing and the conversations we had. And uh, so I, I'm glad to be on and glad to have a conversation. Uh, Michael Martin, thank you so much for uh, chatting with me. Very nice meeting you, sir. Yeah. Michael, it's so. <laughs> you blew it's, Biloxi. That's, is that the, is that the title of one of those treehouse books? Yeah. The Johnny Cash song. <laughs> or Jimmy Buffett. Jimmy Buffett. Right? Down around. Oh, rest in peace. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thanks, everybody. And thanks, our listeners, for listening to The Regeneration.